everybody, what's up? It's Anthony. This is uh, the Setlist Podcast from Texas Blues Alley this Friday, July 22nd, 2016. This podcast is just my opportunity to chat with all of you, keep you up to date with what's going on at Texas Blues Alley, highlight some new things that are coming out, and answer your questions. Occasionally I will opine about uh, a topic that I've been ruminating on. I don't think today is going to be one of those days, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. Uh, first thing, what's new? Well, the newest thing is that I just put out uh, a new course called Rock and Roll Quick Fix Number One. Um, the other day, I was driving in my car, and uh, song came on the radio. It was uh, "Summertime" by Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff. And uh, boy, talk about taking you back! That took me right back to high school. I'm not sure what year that came out, but it feels like uh, it came out when I was in high school and. That song, aside from the name, that song just feels like summertime. And, uh, you know, as I get older, I feel like uh, maybe sometimes I don't get excited about stuff the way that I used to when I was younger. Um, And I started thinking, like, you know, I've never really done anything seasonal with my lessons. It's summertime. I don't like the heat that much, but I do like the feeling of summer. Uh, Don't really get out of work the way that I used to get out of school, but... Wanted to do something that kind of felt like summer. And so I was trying to think, well, what is the uh, the blues fanatic version of uh, Summertime by uh, Fresh Prince? And uh, what I settled on was uh, good old rock and roll a la Johnny B. Good. And I thought back to uh, watching, uh, what was that movie? Back to the Future with Marty McFly playing Johnny B. Good on stage before he got into that awful soloing. Uh, That was kind of my first memory of wanting to play guitar. And to me, that sound of rock and roll, just to me, that's like the feeling of summer. And so I wanted to put something together quick before the summer passes me by. And so what I came up with was this course called uh, the Rock and Roll Quick Fix. And I'll explain what a quick fix course is in a little bit. But uh, that's out now. You can see a sample of it uh, for Free Lesson Friday. You can see all the Free Lesson Friday stuff at uh, TexasBluesAlley.com. You want to head to the Woodshed, which is the place for lessons and such. And then uh, look for Free Lesson Friday in there. And uh, you'll find it there at the top of the list. It's just uh, solo one of rock and roll quick fix number one. And uh, just real quickly, I want to talk about this idea of a quick fix course. In uh, typical fashion, I seem to have explained it with a thousand words, but I really could have done it in two sentences. Basically, a quick fix course, as I'm envisioning it, is just basically a normal full-length course without the teaching. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering, well, if there's no teaching, what's left? Well, what's left is all of the fancy editing techniques that I've come up with over the past nine years uh, to make digesting the demonstrations as easy as possible for learning. So basically, this is the way that it works. This is something that I've been doing for years in my courses. Uh, Whenever I'm teaching a solo or even a rhythm, I will take the solo and I will break it into individual licks. And then I'll go through the solo one lick at a time. And I'll teach each lick the exact same way. First, I have a full speed demonstration taken right from the full demonstration of of the whole solo that I'm teaching. Take just that lick have that demonstrated, 
Then I'll repeat the demonstration, but this time I'll use my video editing software to slow it down to 50%. And then usually in a normal course, I go through and then break it down note by note and call out every single note and every bend that I'm playing. The reason I do this is because people learn different ways. Some people learn by hearing, by watching. Other people learn by uh, being told what to do. And so I figured this way, I can have something that everybody will be able to learn this lick no problem, assuming that it's not technically above their skill level. Now, the problem with teaching this way is that it's really, really hard. Like it takes a really long time to teach this way uh, because I can play a lick just based on, on instinct, but I can't teach it based on instinct. I don't always know exactly what my hands are doing. And so in order to verbalize it, I actually have to be looking at the tabs as I'm teaching, which is kind of a weird thing. Even though I could just play that lick blindfolded in my sleep without thinking about it, in order to tell you what I'm playing, I have to have a different level of awareness about what exactly my hands are doing. And so it takes me a lot longer to get into the frame of mind where I'm able to explain a lick. Now, I don't have any problem doing that. I love doing that. That's why I think my courses have been as popular as they are is because there's not a whole lot of people who teach in such a meticulous way. Uh, but I am kind of bound and determined that when I teach somebody, I want them to make sure they understand it. So that's why I do it. That's what I enjoy. The problem is, is that it makes it very hard to turn around courses quickly. Um, and uh, last year, I introduced a feature called Instant Loops. Uh, for our locals program. And it's an idea that I had been fooling around with for a couple of years. Uh, basically, in the pro player, it all happens online. And I have the ability to store different information alongside a video. For one example is chapter markers. I can store where all the chapters are. So you just click it, and then I magically fast forward the player to the correct place in the, uh, in the video. Not too unlike chapter markers in a DVD or something like that, but it all happens online. Well, I had the idea to store information about loops along with each video. So I'd start storing in and an out point, And then all you had to do was click one thing and it automatically loads the loop and starts looping. And so you don't have to guess anymore where the start or the end point is. You don't have to wait for that loop to play before you mark the end and then hit loop. You just click it. It automatically selects the right in and out and starts looping. So because I have this instant loops feature, it has kind of changed uh, the way some people use courses. And I got an email very shortly after I introduced this feature where somebody said, you know, this feature is a game changer for me because I am now able to go through these lessons faster because I don't have to listen to you talk. And this person didn't mean it as an insult. What they really meant was they were at a point where my explanation was actually unnecessary for them to digest the licks because their eyes were good enough and their ears were good enough that they could watch me demonstrate it. And combined with the fact that this format that I've been using incorporates a half-speed demonstration, if you factor that with the fact that the pro player can do an additional 50% slowdown, you can get down to 25% of full speed when you're using the pro player. So if you take a slow motion demonstration of even my fastest lick, put the pro player at 50% speed and do the instant loop, now you have a very easy way to instantly loop any lick that I'm teaching at 25% speed. 
and, that, and if you can get past the horrible audio at that speed, some people can learn that way. Really, that's how I learned. You know, this um, this process of quickly looping something and then picking it out on the fretboard. This is exactly how I learned because I didn't use tablature and I didn't take lessons. There was no online video. There wasn't. There was barely an online anything, much less uh, online video lessons. Uh, I learned by sitting down and watching and then hitting rewind and uh, until that lick would get ingrained in my head. And then I'd pick it out on the fretboard. And if I was watching a video, I would just do a lot of pausing. <laughs> you know, pausing a VHS tape of Stevie Ray Vaughan playing to see where his hands go. And then some of these VCRs had a slow motion feature. So I would actually, but it didn't have sound. So I would listen to a lick to see how it sounds. Then I'd rewind and put the uh, VCR. Now, maybe I had to put it in pause mode. And then I would fast forward frame by frame. So I'd go one frame of the video at a time to see where his fingers were falling. And if it happened to be a close-up shot, then I might be able to pick it out. Now, obviously, this is not a way that everybody can learn because you have to get to a point where that's even something that your ears and your eyes can pick up. But the important thing to realize is, is that if you get to that point, you become much better at picking things out yourself than listening to somebody talk and explain it. And so what I realized when this person emailed me was that there's a section of my customer base and my member member base that all they need is more high quality demonstrations broken into this format that I've developed of the individual licks demonstrated several ways. And that's like what they really need is the tools of the pro player or if they have looping software at home, they just need good demonstrations, good clean demonstrations played with clean notes so you can hear everything filmed in super high quality and then chopped into the this format that I've developed. And they would have so much more to learn because right now if I put out a course and it takes me a month to put it out and because it's a mini course I can only teach like a 12 bar solo or something like that. They got a whole bunch of stuff in there that they don't need, and they have relatively few, a little bit of what they, is actually useful to them, which is demonstration. So they need more material and less teaching. And when I realized this, that gave me an idea. What if I took... It is not hard for me to put together a solo for a course. It's somewhere between improvising off the cuff and spending three weeks perfectly laying out a solo like I do for, you know, some of my influence courses. Somewhere between that with maybe an hour or two of thinking through a solo, it doesn't take me long to put one of those together, put together a backing track or use one of my existing ones and then lay it down. And once that is captured, all that really needs is that editing applied to it and it becomes something that is very valuable to the people who have reached the point where they can learn by by watching and looping and everything like that. And so I experimented with that format with this new course, and I came up with the name Quick Fix. This is something I talked to my wife about. Uh, quick Fix being like, you don't have a lot of time. You just want to get in there. You want to play some rock and roll. This course is going to give you that quick fix. You just get in there, you study, you watch, and you get through it, and you get back to you know actually playing. Um, and so if this quick fix idea is something that's valuable to enough people, 
then these are something that I can potentially turn around a lot faster than my normal courses. That has doesn't mean I'm not going to do my regular courses because obviously I don't I'm not an online guitar demonstrator. I'm a teacher. I love to teach and for me, the advantage of these quick fix courses is that they're relatively easy to produce and it allows me to keep subscribers engaged more because I got more regular stuff, but it's not rewarding for me in the sense that I don't really get to explain anything because I'm trying to keep the format as compact as possible. So anyway, that is what quick fix courses are. That is who, they f who they're for, uh, and that was the think thinking that went behind it. All right, let's get into some questions here. Uh, I've kind of gone back and collected some questions from the past couple of weeks that have been building up. Uh, here's one from Jake Millis on uh, Millis or Mills. This is the, the fun part of the show where I try and remember everybody's name and pronounce it right. Let's see what, let's see what Jake's real name is. What is it? Is it Jake Millis or Mills? Place your bets now. It's Millis. I had it right the first time. He says, of all the guitars that you have now, that you use on Texas Blues Alley, tell us the story of the one that you got first. That's a great question. Uh, if you guys know my off-white Strat that currently has, what pickguard does that even have right now? Is it a black pickguard or a white one? I don't even remember. But it's the one with the translucent off-white finish. Here's the story of that guitar. That's the only one that I own that I've had the longest. It was not my first guitar, but it was my first real guitar. So my first guitar was a GW Lions uh, Stratocaster-looking thing, cheap thing that I got for $150. Um, then my next guitar was a Squire Stratocaster, which felt like the big time because that cost $200. But then when I had been playing for about a year and a half, I was at a guitar store in Lemoyne, Pennsylvania. It's called Ray's Music, W-R-A-Y. The store has since... Uh, I don't think they're going away, but it's not nearly as big as it used to be. But uh, they had uh, this Stratocaster there. It was, uh, I think it was called a Super Strat. And it had a humbucker in the bridge with a coil splitter and then two single coils. And it, it was the color that it is now, but it had a black pickguard and black pickup covers. And there was something about, aside from the fact that the uh, the price was was near the top of what I thought I could justify as a as a fairly poor college student uh, who just had some leftover money from the summer, I uh, sat down and played this thing, and uh, I don't know, I really liked it. I had no idea how to judge tone, but in some ways, it looked so ugly that I was attracted to it. You know, I almost felt sorry for the guitar because it was this, it had this beautiful paint job, but then it had a black pickguard and black pickup covers that just didn't seem to fit it at all. So I ended up getting that. And then, you know, a year after that, I got an American standard with blues, whatever the Fender uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan pickups are, blues specials or, doggone, what are they called? Texas specials. And uh, so then I played that one for a while. But uh, I eventually got rid of that one because uh, I couldn't part with this first real guitar. I love that thing. And to this day, it's my worst sounding guitar. I've since put a Warmoth neck on it. Big, big, the biggest neck they have. Turned out to be a mistake because it turns out a, a big fat neck is fun to play for about 30 seconds. 
and then you start having to work really hard. Uh, so I realized that the SRV contour is more my more my speed there. But that's the story of that guitar. I still have it. I'll probably never sell it because it has some sentimental value. But it's a, it's heavy. It's not very resonant. Doesn't matter what pickup. I mean, it sounds decent now because I have Zex Coil convertible pickups in it. But it's not a great sounding guitar. Not a great playing guitar. But it looks pretty. And I like that paint job. So that's why I still have it. Next question comes from Robert McCapu or Macapu. I still don't... You ought to tell me how to pronounce your name, dude going to keep asking questions he says are you a hundred percent electric or is there an acoustic guitar hiding in that blues barn of yours i do in fact own an acoustic guitar Uh, i used to have an old cheap one that i got rid of and then uh, for many years i didn't have one at all and then sometime after starting stevie snacks in 2007 i felt like well if i'm a self-respecting guitar player i ought to have an acoustic and i went in and i tried out all the Taylor acoustics that I could find at the local store. And I settled on the, I want to say the 214 CE. Taylor 214 CE. It is the, has the cutaway there. Yeah, that's the one. And I think it's got a rosewood body or something like that. I don't remember. Anyway, it's a, uh, it's a nice sounding guitar. I like it. I, you know, people have different opinions about electric guitars, but for me, Taylor sounds the way that I want an acoustic guitar to sound. Uh, why don't I play it more in my lessons? Which I think is where he was going with that question. Uh, because I don't really know how to play an acoustic well. Uh, I tend to attack it like an electric guitar. And the result is just very, very underwhelming. So if I use an acoustic for anything, it's basically for keeping my fingers in shape or for uh, playing when I'm too lazy to uh, plug a cable into an amp or something like that. But I can't... My internal... My internal song is usually electric. I just don't feel in an acoustic mood very often. Um... Maybe someday that'll change, but for now, acoustic is more an occasional fascination, more than something that I love enough to teach with. Uh, Here's a question from David Cohn. How about compare and contrast amplifiers and effects used by Hendrix and SRV? I think that's a good question and a potential uh, Pandora's box of comments, so I'm going to keep it short. In terms of effects, I think the thing you have to keep in mind is that uh, Hendrix was active during the late 60s, Stevie Ray Vaughan was active during the late 70s, early 80s, and the effects situation was way different. Case in point, uh, the Tube Screamer, one of the hallmarks of Stevie Ray Vaughan's chain, was not even released, I think, until uh, mid to late 70s. This is after Jimmy already passed away. So my understanding of Jimmy's effects is that he used, uh, obviously, a wah-wah pedal, obviously a fuzz, a univibe, and an octavia. Uh, wah, univibe, fuzz, all, you know, prevalent. And then every once in a while, you'd hear the uh, the octave up sound. And uh, he played through primarily Marshall amps, I believe, which have a very distinct sound. And when he would step on his fuzz, uh, because his amps were already running a little dirty, and then he would run a fuzz face into it, the result would be a tone that was thick, but not always as fuzzy as a fuzz pedal sounds. Uh, this is kind of what Wampler pedals tried to emulate with the uh, Velvet Fuzz, 
which is the sound of a fuzz hitting the front of a dirty amp, and you get a little bit of phase cancellation there. The resulting tone is smoother than what you'd get out of a fuzz pedal straight into like a solid state amp that's perfectly clean. Um, and so that's why Hendrix's effects, I don't, he didn't really use overdrive in the sense that the way that a lot of people use overdrive pedals now, he wasn't really pushing his amps. He was more feeding, he was adding fuzz to his tone, which then kind of collided with the the uh, breakup in the amp already, creating some wonderful tones. Another thing about Hendrix is that I don't think he was very picky about his guitars. I remember reading one time that he would take guitars straight off the shelf and then destroy them and, and get new ones, that he wasn't, uh, wasn't nearly as particular about which guitar he played uh, in terms of holding on to specific uh, guitars. Uh, Stevie, on the other hand, uh, was using, I, you know, very early on, Fender amps as his base, even though he evolved to use Marshalls and uh, Dumbles, obviously. Uh, but the Fender sound was kind of the core where he started, and he was pushing them with one or two tube screamers. Now, he did use a wah-wah pedal. He did use a Univibe. Uh, he did use an Octavia-style pedal at different points. But the tube screamer... Uh, pushing a Fender amp was kind of his core thing, and that's very different than what Hendrix did. The result is that you get a very muscular tone that retains a little bit more clarity than what you would hear from Hendrix sometimes. Hendrix, What Hendrix did really well is that he would use his volume to control the breakup of his tone, even within you know, licks. Even within a solo, he'd use his volume because fuzz pedals, the fuzz face variety, do this thing where you roll back the volume, they clean up, in a very pristine way. Uh, and so Hendrix did a good job of getting a lot of tones out of just using a fuzz and an amp. Uh, Stevie, with the Fender sound as his bass and pushing them with an overdrive pedal, he did use a fuzz, obviously, on certain things, but, uh, you know, obviously his result was different than what Hendrix would get, uh, especially when he'd use the tube screamers with the Fender amps. Um, so, yeah, that's all I'm really going to say about that, I don't want to get into it anymore because this tends to be kind of a hotbed of a topic, but that's just my impression. Fuzz faces and Marshalls versus Tube Screamers and Fenders. Um, two different approaches. Uh, ben Shireman asks, I'd love to hear how you compose songs to practice, including bass and drums. Uh, whenever I'm composing a song, I'm usually doing it for a course. And uh, I'm usually putting together a backing track uh, for you guys to play along with. And so what I do is I have software from Tune Track. Superior Drummer is the name of it. And Superior Drummer, basically what it is, is you can think of it as two different things. Superior Drummer is a drum sound generator based off of actual recordings. So it's like MIDI, but it's based off of actual recordings of drummers. So what they've done is they've taken recordings of famous drummers recording, and they've separated the sound of the kit into individual samples that can be tied to different MIDI notes. That concept is not new. Uh, but you have different kits you can buy. But what it also is, is a um, collection of MIDI loops that you can use. So when I want to put together a backing track for a song, what I do is I sit down, I figure out what the uh, time signature is going to be, what the tempo is going to be. And once you set those parameters in your project uh, in, in Logic, 
Now, if you add a superior drummer to one of your tracks and you pop it open, all of the samples will play back at that tempo and that time, and it will attempt to play it with the time signature that you've played. And so, um, at least I think that's how it works. So if you, for example, put in like a 12-8 time signature with some swing in it for slow blues, and you try and play a 4-4 sample, it's going to sound really weird. Um, so as long as you got that right, now it, you could you could take a loop from something that was, you know, like if I pop open Superior Drummer and I see a song that was recorded 115 beats per minute, and the track that I'm putting together is 140 beats per minute, most of the time, as long as you're within 20 or 30 beats per minute of what the song is recorded at, the, the loop will end up sounding fine. And so you buy a couple of MIDI packs. You've got the Superior Drummer drum kits there. It gives you a lot of control over just the drum track, and it makes it really, really fast to put together uh, a drum track that you can actually have fills and everything like that. You know, you, we've all downloaded those backing tracks where... It's like the cheesiest MIDI drums that you can possibly imagine, and it's the same beat the whole way through, and it doesn't even sound like real drums. It's just computer-generated drums. And those things always drove me crazy, but uh, with tools like Superior Drummer, it's uh, there's no reason why most people would should be able to, should be able to tell that you weren't using a live drummer. Uh, and then for the bass, so usually what I do is I put down a single, I pick out a single drum loop, and I drag that out for, I loop that for the entire duration of whatever I think I'm going to record. Uh, and then I will go in and lay down a, a rough rhythm guitar track. Because when I have those two things, now I've got the beat and I've got the melody. That's when I can go pick up my bass and I can record enough bass loops to loop throughout the performance. Or sometimes I just record it the whole way through, depending on, on how well I have it memorized. Uh, so then I will have my then I will have a rough drum track, a bass track that could end up being the final bass track, and a rough guitar track. Then I will go back and usually start working on whatever rhythm guitar I want to put in there to be kind of my final thing. And if I'm putting together a backing track for a lesson, I will usually just record using um, the same software that I used last week, Bias FX. Um, I find that their amps sound better than the amps that are built into Logic. Uh, so I'll usually do that. Then I will go back and I will dress up the drum track. And what I'll try and do is I'll try and find similar but noticeably different versions of the same kind of beat to use at different sections of the song. Then I will identify places where it feels like there should be a fill. And I'll search through their list of MIDI fill loops and I'll put those in there and time it and then uh, try and put some kind of ending on the end or something like that. And uh, boy, it's completely changed how fast I can put together a track. I can put together a really nice backing track in an afternoon. And I can't even tell you how long it used to take me to do that kind of stuff back when I was punching in MIDI notes, you know, one at a time. Oh, get nightmares thinking about that. So yeah, thanks to a Superior Drummer and having a bass and having fairly you know, basic bass skills enough to record basic parts uh, and some uh, amp simulation software. I'm able to do uh, some pretty cool stuff. Now, the the thing that I'm missing and the thing that I really want to find a solution for is keyboard tracks. Um, I think they have a product 
that's kind of like Superior Drummer, but for keyboards. Uh, but I haven't researched enough to know if it would work uh, for what I'm doing, because unlike drums, uh, keyboards are more of a melodic instrument, and uh, you got a lot more... Uh, you got things about the feel of the song that, that don't necessarily... They aren't as critical with drums as they are with keyboards. But anyway, that's, that's what I want to look into next. Uh, that's all the questions that I have. Uh, this has been a, uh episode of the Setlist Podcast. You can find all the episodes at texasbluesalley.com slash setlist. And uh, this one will be at the top of the list. have more things for you next week. I have a few topics I have in mind. But uh, until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>